so good to worship with you. It's okay to get a little rowdy in church today. I mean, we, we got the student pastor up here preaching today. So we're going to go next. Y'all ain't ready for this. All right, we're going to go. We're going to go hard. But I don't, I, let me just pause real quick. I don't know what kind of stereotypes come to your mind when you think about the youth pastor preaching. This message is not sponsored by Mountain Dew. Um, I'm not going to say words like Liddy and Finna and, you know, all that stuff. All right, I got a word from the word. And I'm going to come for some people today. So we're going to get after it. Open your Bibles to Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is our food for the, today. And as you're turning there, I just want to ask a simple question. Um, how many of you would say and raise your hand to say you have something like this in your possession, in your house, in your garage, in your car, right? Any, anybody? Yep, you got it. You got the hammer. All right, some of you are like, I got like seven hammers. I got the framing hammer. I got my the, the other hammers. And <laughs> so I don't, uh, right? And then some of us are like, I have one that came in like a kit. It's pink handled. I don't know. It's just, I tack things in, like all different aspects. But what I'm going to ask for you to do today is to get a hold of a spiritual hammer. We're gonna do some building. I'm gonna challenge you to do some building in your life, specifically building into your family, building into the next generation, building into other disciples. And I want us to see it from God's word. Um, as I was preparing this week, I was reminded of a story I had heard a while ago about a retiring carpenter. And it was uh, this man who had worked uh, many years in the trade and had built a legacy for himself around his carpentry. And he worked for one specific contractor as a builder for him. And he built dozens of homes that people loved and were grateful for. He was known for his exceptional quality, his attention to detail. He was an amazing carpenter. As he got older in age, he decided he was going to hang up the hammer and go spend more time with his family. He was going to retire. And so he walks into his contractor's office and he says, hey, the home I just finished, it's the last home I'm going to build. I'm, I'm retiring. This is my notice. And the contractor was, of course, grieved by this because this man had been a loyal worker, hard worker, had done amazing things for the company. And so he said, hey, can I ask for one last favor? Can you build one more home? And the carpenter, because of their history together, their friendship, he agreed. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get one more done for you. But a couple weeks in, it was very apparent that his heart was just not in his work. He had already pictured himself crossing the finish line. He was done. And so he started cutting corners. He used inferior materials, shoddy workmanship, and he finished the house in record time. And the contractor came out to do the final inspection. Before he even crossed the threshold, he handed the carpenter a stack of papers and keys to the front door. And he said, this is my gift to you. I wanted to give you a gift. The house is free. It's yours. And you can imagine the feeling that washed over that carpenter when he realized that the thing that he invested the least amount of time in and effort in was probably the most important house he had ever built. And now every morning when he woke up and he sat down to breakfast and he saw that corner that didn't quite meet right and he saw the materials that weren't as good as some of the other homes he had built, he would be reminded of his legacy being tarnished because he had not put in the effort to build where it truly mattered. 
It's a simple story. You might hear it at a graduation speech or something like that. But what I want us to do today is to pull a principle out of it that we can learn from. And we're going to see it in God's word as well. The principle is this. We often spend more effort building things that will not last while the things that will last we spend no effort building. And while the retiring carpenter can lead us to that, God's word is infinitely more powerful in pointing us to that truth and then helping us walk and live differently because of it. So in Psalm 127, we're gonna see how we can seek God's help in building a legacy that truly matters. Psalm 127 is one of only two psalms in the Bible that were written by King Solomon. King Solomon is the son of David, who we know as the author of the majority of the psalms. And this specifically is a psalm of ascent. See, Jerusalem was located on a hill, and as the Jews traveled to their place of worship, they would literally have to ascend a hill. And on their journey, they had written songs specifically to prepare their hearts to call themselves to worship. And Solomon does that here. So if everyone could join me, I thought we would sing this together to the tune of Old McDonald. Ready? One, two, three. Just kidding. Some of you were ready. You were like, if you're going to go there, I'll follow you. But no, we're not going to, I won't make you do that. Let's read it. Let me read it for us today. Read with me Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now as we dig down on this psalm, we're going to see two distinct takeaways from it today as we're considering how to build a legacy, as we're thinking about picking up our hammer and building into the relationships God has given us, the first thing we need to realize is that we need to build dependently. We need to build dependently. Look back at verse one to see this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, it's significant that Solomon is the author of this psalm and he's referencing building because that guy knew a thing or two about building and legacy. Again, he's the son of David and in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see his father David declare to the Lord, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, not you. You've shed way too much blood in your life. But I promise you that one of your offspring will build me a house. Enter Solomon. And he builds the temple, a.k.a. the Lord's house. And he didn't just put up four walls and a roof and said, there, I did it, Dad. I, I did it, God. I built a house. It's done. Solomon went all out. The estimated value in today's currency of just the gold and silver 
in the temple that Solomon used to build is $216 billion. That whistle was absolutely correct. Insane. Can you imagine the magnificence, the beauty, the splendor, the pristine attention to detail, the quality of every single part of that place with a value so far past the surrounding market value around it? I mean, I've seen some pictures and videos of insane houses. I've watched the million dollar house hunter episodes. Like nothing compares to this. This is next level. Currently today, if you were to research what's the most expensive home in the world, Buckingham Palace is listed at 2.9 billion and we're talking about $216 billion for this temple. Yet Solomon makes this staggering statement in his opening line of his call to worship. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, build it in vain. Vain is a strong word. It means emptiness. It means doesn't matter, has no point. All that gold, all that silver, all that work, all that labor to accumulate it and then actually put the thing up doesn't matter would not matter if God had not been in the building of that house. So if we're to be dependent builders, if we're gonna build dependently, we must be dependent on God's plan. God's plan to build is more important than our plan to build. If God is not in it, it is in vain. My wife and I are fascinated by the concept of like renovating an entire house, like building a house from the ground up. Um, we've been married eight years. In those eight years, we've lived in five different homes. And you learn what you do and what you don't like about the homes that you live in and the things that you would change if you had all the money in the world and all this stuff. And so we love the shows. We watch the shows, Fixer Upper, Hometown, Flip or Flop, love it or list it, like we are soaking these in because the idea that, oh man, look at all this amazing things you can do to a home to make it more like the way you want it to be. And listen, this is a pipe dream. We have no delusions of grandeur that like Chip and Joanna are gonna come knocking on our door. But can, can you imagine if they did for a second? Just imagine Chip and Joanna Gaines just show up at my house and they're like, hey, we're gonna redo your whole house. And then I go, great, I have a plan. Here's my plan. And uh, if you could just like give a stamp of approval, Chip, that'd be great. And then go stand back there. I got it from here, buddy. Now listen, I'm kind of a handy guy. I got tools, okay? I got uh, multiple DeWalt batteries laying around, okay? I can do some things. I don't know how to build a house. I don't even know where to start. Like Chip Gaines standing in the corner. I'm on YouTube like, um, how to build a house. Like what? No, that makes no sense. It would be a way better use of my time. Hey, Chip, um, I have two hands. I have very minimal skill. Um, but if you just tell me what to do, if you come with the plan and you put me in a scenario where I will succeed, I can be of use. But it's your plan. You're in charge. You call the shots. Do you get the parallel I'm trying to draw here? How crazy is it that we would come to God and say, hey God, I have a really good plan for my life. I'm gonna do all the building. If you could just kind of like bless it every now and then, make sure stuff keeps going. If you could fund the bill, that'd be really, really helpful. Rather, we must be dependent on God's 
plan, what God is in, we must spend our time building. We also need to be dependent on God's protection. Look at the other half of verse one. He says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. See, even back in Solomon's day, people were obsessed with the idea that once they had built a city, built a home, gathered some things that were worth something, they had to do everything they could to protect it, to guard it. It used to be like only reserved for the wealthy to install security systems and cameras and have guards and gates at their homes. And now startup companies are everywhere offering you doorbell cameras and window sensors for a fraction of a monthly cost so that you can protect the investment of your home. You can feel safe and secure. Most neighborhoods have a neighborhood watch program that you can donate to, you can be a part of so that you feel like your neighborhood is a safe place that you're protected. Our cities, our counties, our states have law enforcement to protect those places. Our nation spent $714 billion on defense alone last year. Why? Because we are obsessed with the idea that we must protect what we have built. It must be protected. John Calvin says that verse one is actually an, a, an objection to the blind arrogance of men who take credit for what God has done. This is what he says. Politicians and intellectuals discuss at length and in depth how to govern a nation and control crime. But they omit the principal point that however brilliant their policies, they will achieve nothing unless God blesses their endeavors by using them as instruments to do his will. Thus, the Holy Spirit rebukes the folly of assuming good management will bring genuine happiness to a nation when a government neglects to give God his rightful place on his divine throne. All that to say, verse one is a confrontation of the arrogance and the ignorance of our hearts that we would believe that we have any say over what gets protected. God is the one who created and sustains the universe. God is the one who directs the hearts of kings wherever he pleases. God is the one who controls every wave, every sparrow, every action. And if he is for us, scripture declares who can be against us. But if God is not for you, your attempts at protecting what you have built with your own hands are feeble at best. We must be dependent on God's protection. And as dependent builders, we must also be dependent on God's provision. Verse 2 reads, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Any fans of sleep in the house today? Woo, come on, people for more sleep. I came to church today to tell you, take a nap. All right, amen, let's pray. Now let's talk about this for a second. We live in the hustle and grind culture, right? We got the wake, pray, slay mugs. We got the success is built on my back. My dreams are too important for me to sleep type of language going around. It's a badge of honor for you to say how little sleep you got and how many hours you've put in to achieve your goals. 
And so what do we do? We overwork, we over-caffeinate, we go to bed too late, we get up way too early, and it's just a cycle. We repeat, somehow chasing this thing that we're trying to build so that what? It can burn. Rather, here's Solomon who, let's just remind ourselves, he prayed to the Lord for wisdom and the Lord granted it to him, meaning he is the wisest man who ever walked the earth and what is his declaration to you? Get some more sleep. Take a break, rest, five letters for everyone at Gospel City, R-E-L-A-X, relax, we're gonna be okay. As a Chicago Bears fan, I apologize for the Aaron Rodgers reference, but we need to hear it. Relax, chill. It's not all dependent on you. The Lord builds the house. The Lord protects. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, for he gives to his beloved sleep. We're so good at eating the bread of anxious toil. We strive and we fight and we claw and we gather all of these things and then we're so stressed out that we can't even enjoy the things that we've pursued. Million dollar homes sit vacant because the people have to work so many hours to keep up with the mortgage or to accumulate the next thing or buy the next thing. Rather, dependent builders rest in God's provision. God will supply your need. Even in seasons of lack, we can find rest in the God who feeds the sparrows and dresses the lilies. How much more will he care for us? But now hear me when I say this. This is not the lazy loophole verse. This is not the, hey, Pastor Brent said we should sleep more, so I'm quitting my job, and I'm gonna take more naps, and we're gonna go to bed at like eight o'clock. It's gonna be great. There's still work to be done. Work is not a result of the curse. Sin did not bring work into the world. God brought work into the world. Sin brought toil. Sin made it hard. There's jobs to be done, but this anxious toil refers to strenuous work that's strenuous on the body and the mind. It's a quote from the curse in Genesis Three, that word toil here is the same word pain from Genesis 3. It refers to painful, labor, toilsome. See, we toil to accumulate wealth. We fight against the curse. We deny our humanity by refusing to give ourselves a break because we believe that it all depends on us. We think we are the ones who are ultimately in charge of our destiny, of achieving our goals and our status, of building our homes, protecting what we've built, and then working harder to gain more so we can build more and protect more. See, and Solomon is, is not the like, just put your feet up type of guy. He knew a little bit about working, earning a wage, accumulating wealth. In today's currency, Solomon's net worth to trillion dollars. That's trillion with a T. That's a little hard for us to comprehend sometime. See, a billion is 1,000 millions. And a trillion is 1,000 billions. And this guy got two of them. He is richer than the 400 richest Americans combined. 
Solomon is not saying you shouldn't work and earn a wage. You shouldn't accumulate what God blesses you with. But what he's saying is if that is your end all be all, if it's keeping you up at night and getting you up early, that's why you get out of bed to get the things, vanity. Because sleep comes to the loved. Those who know and rest in the fact that Jesus has them, that God will supply every need. Heard a quote this week that said, God is the only one who gets to the end of the day with everything checked off his to-do list. The rest of us have to kind of go, okay, good enough. It takes faith to go to sleep. It reminds us of our humanity that we are not infinite. We don't have infinite energy, time, or resources. We must depend on God. So we need to be dependent builders And with that dependency as a foundation, we must also build intentionally. See, there's still work to be done, so if we're gonna put our hands to something, we should do it with intention. There's a shift here in verse three. See, the first two verses put an emphasis on God's role in the building, and then in verse three, we see Solomon start to point out what God blesses when we put our work to it. Read verse three with me. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. So here he's starting to talk about, here's what really matters. You wanna build something not in vain? Raise your children. Build children. The word heritage also refers to legacy that there would be a lasting impact. You wanna build a legacy, cherish children, love them, focus on them, recognize them as a gift from the Lord, invest in them, raise them in God's word. Spend your time building, protecting, toiling over the raising of children. Anything else that we would give our lives to, Solomon is saying. Other things are good, but anything else that would take precedence over pouring into the next generation is vanity. And so an intentional builder is intentional with their family. We must be intentional with our family. Now quickly before I lose anyone listening today who's like, I, I, don't, I don't have kids, I'm single or newly married, we don't have kids yet, or we're waiting on the Lord for kids, or we're unable to have kids, or uh, my kids are done, I'm, I'm done with that part of my life, they're out of the house. This verse is not excluding you, it is including you. It is an invitation for you to see how God has designed children to be an opportunity for us to pour in and invest. That children are not a sub part of society, they are an integral part of what we are trying to do as disciple makers. They matter greatly. You're not somehow less of a Christian or a disciple maker or an effective follower of Jesus if you don't have kids. Rather, you are invited into a significant part of God's story to help save the world. Here's how I know this. When we look back at the beginning of everything, 
God's first command to his people is be fruitful and multiply. That's the conservative way of saying like have a lot of babies. So he says, hey, physical offspring are gonna matter. And then the curse happens. And he declares to Eve that the one that will crush the serpent's head will come from her offspring, implying that she needed to have physical offspring. And then we see Abraham and declaring the blessing that will come to the nations through his sons. Again, emphasis on physical offspring, eventually into David and King Solomon down to the line of Jesus Christ born through his line. The Davidic covenant fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ being born to the Virgin Mary who lived a perfect life, died on the cross in our place, defeating sin and death, raising to life again, and now gives us the opportunity to walk in newness of life. Why? Why does this matter, Brent? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the purpose for the emphasis of physical offspring. And now, because of Jesus, we have the invitation to join the spiritual family of God. It says we are adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. So you have a responsibility, whatever your stage of life, you have a supreme responsibility to children because they are in the family of God. You are a part of this journey. Children are a heritage to the, from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Children matter to God, so they should matter to us. But the sad reality is our culture does not view children as a blessing. See, the Jew during this time, the child was the blessing. It wasn't like they had kids so that God would bless them in some other way. Oh, now my business is gonna succeed because I had kids or my life is gonna be really awesome because I had kids. No, the child itself was the blessing that God was supplying. Family was everything in that society. But today, children seem more like a curse than a blessing. It means the death of a career the death of personal freedoms and liberties. Now I'm tied down. And just being honest, 62 million babies have been declared not just a curse, but a disease, a parasite to eradicate. Now this is, this is a spectrum. There is the... the way other side that would say the life of a child doesn't even matter. And I would declare over everyone in this room that we, we would not believe that lie, that we would see the value that is in the life of a child. But I had to challenge myself this week that on this spectrum, I believe the lie sometimes that somehow other things are more important than the children God has placed in my life. My supreme devotion to my job, to my hobby, to the things that I want to do. If those take the place then I am buying into the lie that somehow children aren't that important. And we see in the New Testament again and again, Jesus' love for the children. Having faith like a child, let the children come to me. Notice that children are from the Lord. This isn't a, oh, I, I built this, it was it was me that made it happen. No, God has entrusted you with a child, has put children in the midst of our church as an act of stewardship to us. 
See, if you were to walk into the other half of this building on a Sunday morning, you would walk into a disciple-making factory ripe with opportunity to be intentional and absolutely dependent on the Lord to supply what you needed to pour out into the kids there. If you were to show up on a Wednesday night, you would find over 150 middle school and high school students ready and available for someone to speak into their life to help them walk with the Lord. And that's a beautiful picture of what God has given us as a spiritual family. It is all of our responsibility to pour in. We must be intentional builders. And then in verse four, Solomon elaborates on the power of being intentional with your family and what can happen. Read it with me. Verse four says, like the arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So children are a reward from the Lord, but they're also a weapon for the Lord. Um, I I really wanted a real bow and arrow, but HR wouldn't let me bring one on stage. So um, I have this, but there's there's a universal truth about weapons. It's that they're disastrous in the wrong hands and they're effective in the right hands. See, the difference between handing a bow and arrow to a civilian versus a warrior is the warrior knows exactly how to wield them. And he trusts that as he pulls back and launches an arrow, it's gonna fly straight and true towards its intended target. And the reason the warrior knows this is because of the hours and hours he spent training with that arrow. He knows it inside and out. He knows exactly what its flaws are, how to use it a certain way. He knows where to press. He knows what to hold, what to do, all of that, how to line up the sights, and he can launch with accuracy. (laughs) I'm obviously a civilian in this story. The point being, you don't just magically become this warrior. You don't wake up one day and decide, oh, now I know how to shoot a bow and arrow. It takes focus and discipline, hours and hours, so that when you get in a situation where you would have to launch that arrow either at a target or an enemy in these days, that warrior knew exactly what was going to happen when he pulled back and released where that arrow was going. And a lot of times you think about, you know, being in a situation like that, you would want to be prepared and to know the state of your arrows. See, the last thing a warrior would want is to reach back and pull an arrow out of his quiver and find that it's splintered or snapped or the edge of it is completely dull because it's gonna be really ineffective. He would not wanna be surprised by that in the moment when he needed it most but it takes an intense amount of focus and discipline in other areas of his life before he got to the moment where he needed to launch the arrow for him to craft and sharpen that arrow and train with it and know it well. See, me, a civilian, I could launch an arrow and accidentally hit a target. (laughs) Call it beginner's luck, call it whatever you want. It could happen by accident. No one ever unintentionally by accident made a disciple. It takes focus. It takes discipline. You do not become a skilled warrior without intentional focus. You do not become a skilled disciple maker without intentional focus. So we must be intentional with our focus. 
See, a well-cared-for and sharpened arrow will be extremely effective in the right hands as it's launched out into the world. As we're talking about the idea of children and youth stepping into adulthood, we would want to know the state of those arrows before they ever left the bow. And you need to know that there are a lot of things in the world right now that are threatening to splinter and snap our arrows. I get the privilege of serving our middle school and high school students in this house and I spend weeks with them and I've learned about just a couple things I wanna share with you that are obstacles in their way from flying straight and true. The first thing is they're splintered in their sexuality. I'm gonna be real with you. The average age of viewing pornography is eight years old. And so for a child who's exposed at that age, by the time they reach middle school, they're addicted. Outside of that, you start to think about sexual relationships and there is more pressure than ever at a young age to have multiple experiences with a sexual partner. Gender is no longer a physical status, it is now a social status. Questioning gender and sexual orientation is in vogue. And what it's doing is it's planning questions in the minds of students who wouldn't normally have them. And the, que- the students who are really struggling with those questions, walking through, God what, God, what is happening in my life? How do I deal with this? Are getting lost in the sea because it's cool to have these questions. It doesn't matter. Everyone experiences this. It's not a big deal. They're splintered in their sexuality and they're splintered in their mentality. Students are literally losing their minds which causes substance abuse, which is still at an all-time high. Alcohol, vaping has made tobacco and marijuana way more accessible, way easier to hide and get a hold of. Depression, suicidal ideations run rampant at a younger and younger age because students don't feel like they can live up to expectations from parents or teachers or they just look on social media and feel like a failure compared to what other people are posting. At the core of all of these things, Absolute truth continues to dangerously erode. Cries of live your own truth, you do you, no judgment, call for us to stop holding anyone to any sort of standard and allow each individual to say, I'll do whatever's right for me. Gospel City family, we need to be intentional builders, crafting and sharpening these arrows. And it's not dependent on our knowledge and who we are, it is dependent on the word of God dwelling richly in their hearts. And parents, you you cannot do this alone. My oldest is six, I'm already terrified at what I haven't been able to instill in him. But right right now he's back in Gospel City Kids and someone else is speaking truth over his life. The Holy Spirit is working in his little heart right now because of the commitment of someone else to say, I'll build, I'll be intentional. The church is not the primary disciple maker in your home, parents, it's not, you are. But we are a partner with you. 
And we need the church to surround one another and be intentional with our families, be intentional with our focus. So here's a quick application. Gospel City Students is getting ready to start up in August. At the end of August, we'll be on Wednesday nights. And again, like I said, there is amazing opportunity. Tonight at 6.30, we have an open house here for everyone who's interested in just learning more about the ministry, whether you're a parent, a student, or a potential leader, volunteer. And I would just invite you, if you're like, man, I, I hear that and it breaks my heart that there's all these questions and students struggling. And I remember being in that season of my life and someone who was a little bit older pouring into me and it mattered a great deal or I wish I would have had someone at that stage in my life and you're like, I can make arrows out of sixth to 12th graders, I'll be there. And I just come, come here, how we're gonna be intentional, what we're gonna do, how we're gonna be shaping and sharpening arrows this next year. It's an open invitation. Pray that the Lord would use it in your life. So here we are at the end of Psalm 127. It's verse five. Solomon writes, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Antonio Cromartie played cornerback in the NFL. He had 14 children with eight different women. Antonio Cromartie is not blessed from this verse. <laughs> You're only supposed to have one quiver. He had eight. Um, you need one. And so the point of this verse is not saying the more children that you have, you are somehow more blessed. No, Solomon is referring to a specific blessing when it comes to having multiple arrows in your quiver, and that comes in the form of legacy. Again, that word heritage. You see, to the same respect that if we build the wrong things, they will not last, our legacy means nothing outside of what others will say of us when we are gone. You can think you are building a legacy as much as you want, but unless your life has left a lasting impact on others who will carry on that legacy and replicate it, then it's not truly a legacy. And when Solomon writes he will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemy in the gate, there's not really a modern day equivalent that we can pull that from. See, uh, in the city there would be a main gate and at that gate is where a lot of the men would go and business would happen. Disputes would be settled, contracts would be made, negotiations were held. And so if you had someone who was coming against you, if someone brought an allegation against you or had something that they had to work through with you, you would go and it would be settled at the gates. And one of the most valuable things you could provide in that dispute would be credible witnesses. And so for a father, the most credible witnesses he could supply would be, hey, just look at my family. Take a look at my family. Hear from my sons and my daughters. Hear who I am, that this is not what they're saying. It's not true. And the honor that children would provide to their parents. Again, the child was the blessing. And so the family unit was everything to them. And so the more children they have, the more opportunity for honor to be bestowed upon the parents. And when you think about building your legacy, the way other people speak about your character is worth its weight in gold. 
See, parents, you can provide the nicest house, the best clothes, the finest amenities for your children all of their life, but if they don't respect you and if they don't think highly of your integrity or character, you have failed them as a parent. If my children look back on their childhood and all they can remember are the things that dad got them, I have failed them as a parent. Rather, I would want my children, when asked someday, hey, tell me about your dad, I'd want them to say something like, well, he wasn't perfect, but he loved Jesus, and he loved our mom, and he loved us. He gave his life for the church, for the glory of God, to serve others. He had a lot of fun, but he was serious about what truly mattered. I remember a mentor telling me a few years ago to take the time to sit down and write my own eulogy. Sounds kind of dark, morbid. But I remember him saying, the greatest clarity you can get about your life will happen when you take a moment to focus on what you want people to remember when you're dead. Think about that in light of these verses. What will your legacy be? How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered as the father, the mother, the mentor who gave things, provided financial support, supplied every physical need, or do you want to be remembered as a spiritual giant in your family, in your community? In also, I just want to clarify, there's, this is not an advertisement for you have to be like the perfect parent and have it all together all the time or only let your children see the together parts of you. Rather, I think letting our children, our youth into the idea that adults are weak sinners too is really, really helpful. If I could implore anything of a middle school and high school student, it would be let your children know you're not perfect. Let them know that you were a teenager at one point too and you made some mistakes and use those mistakes as a testimony to God's grace in your life. No, we do not want our kids to sin. No, we do not want our teenagers to make mistakes that will screw up their lives. But we also don't want to pretend that the minute you got saved, everything got perfect. The biggest hang up I see in youth is they have these moments of clarity where, oh my gosh, I am a sinner, I need Jesus, and they declare him as their savior, and then for about two to three days, things are awesome, and they're reading their Bibles, and they're talking to their friends about Jesus, and then they make a mistake. And they're like, well, it wasn't real? Or what is this? What am I supposed to do with this now? And I remember some of the most powerful moments with my father were hearing his testimony of how he didn't get everything right. But Jesus, but God in his life. And so what I'm imploring us to do today is to be intentional with our flaws. Let them into the story that God is writing on your life as well as theirs. My parents modeled this for me so well. I'm, I'm the youngest of three. I'm sure they wish they had done some things differently in their parenting. But I just want to publicly say that my mom and dad will not be put to shame because I've seen their lives 
and I can testify to the grace of God in their lives and the commitment that they've made to see the glory of God through their lives. They prayed for me, they set an example for me, and my life will continue to build on the legacy that they have begun, and I promise to pour that into my children to continue it on even further. And part of this needs to be being intentional with your flaws. Let them into the real parts of your life. And just to be honest, there were times in my life where my parents would speak truth to me and I couldn't hear it. But I would hear the same truth from a youth pastor or a friend who loved Jesus and it was way easier to understand. And that's why we need the church. That's why we partner with parents because we believe in supporting and encouraging what God is doing in the home. So many of us are seeking glory and honor from our success in our careers, the houses we can afford to buy, and the wealth we accumulate. All of that is vanity. The billionaire whose kids are a train wreck is not worthy of honor, he's worthy of shame. The person who gets to the end of their life having done nothing, spent no time, no effort to pour into the next generation coming up after them is not worthy of honor, they're worthy of shame. You wanna be worthy of honor, build into kids. So let me ask you these questions as we close today. What house are you building? Your house might be a career, a hobby, a legacy, your family. Wherever you find identity and rest and comfort, whatever you are doing that makes you feel at home is your house. What house are you building? Everything the Lord builds will last, everything else will burn. Are you a dependent builder? If you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on my family. I'm all in on the next generation. I see the impact it can make. I'm there, let's do it. Are you gonna be a dependent builder? Are you gonna be intentional? This isn't babysitting. Are you gonna be strategic in everything you do so that you could help shape, sharpen, and help keep arrows from splintering? We need you. What maybe in your life do you need to tear down so that you have more room to build where you need to actually build? And lastly, think about your legacy. What will it be? Are you crafting and sharpening arrows right now? If not, start today, don't wait. If you have kids, start with your kids. If you don't, there's plenty here. Your spiritual family needs you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would impress this on our hearts today, that you would not let us escape from this moment or dismiss it as for somebody else. But right here, God, would you seal on our hearts the love you have for children. God, we're not just talking about babies. We're talking about those who are in elementary school, middle school, high school, who are growing physically, but also needs so badly to be fed and grown spiritually. 
God, that we would send out an army of arrows into the world in this next generation, that there would be days, decades from now, where someone would stand here and declare the work that someone built into their life with their hands, that they were dependent on the Lord, they were intentional with their time, and they made a disciple of Jesus Christ that will carry on a legacy that truly matters. God, help everything that we do here in this moment to outlive us until the day you come back. God, we long for our spiritual home. We long for the day where the toil is done and we can rest fully and completely in Jesus. But until that day, God, give us energy. Give us strength to put our hand to the plow, to not look back and to cultivate and to build what you have called us to build. And I pray that our focus today would be how we are building into the next generation. Let us be your hands, let us be your feet as we build our lives on your love and your sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen.